Alright, if you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Alright. Kind of feels strange not to say turn to Galatians. We've been, uh, ever since I served as your pastor, we have been going through the, the book of Galatians, although uh, Easter and, and Palm Sunday, we, we did do a couple of different texts there, but uh, we're starting a new sermon series for the rest of the summer. And it's entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And I honestly, I seriously considered this. I really, I really, I really wanted to come out of that door, take off my coat, put on a sweater, and, and take these shoes off and put on some, some slippers. I really wanted to do that. I, I, I really think, um, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Mr. Rogers is, is who, who we're thinking of here. Uh, there was a program that ran for decades uh, for children, and it was just this man, uh, a very kind and gentle and, and a very nice man who would just continue to like give lessons to children, and there was a children's program. He went to the land of make-believe and, and talked about uh, just all kinds of different topics um, and, and had this, uh, this program, what was it called? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? And so the sermon series is going to be entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And for the next four Sundays, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the story of the Good Samaritan. And everyone is probably familiar with the story. Um, and I'm going to do something a little unique. And that is that we are going to, I'm going to preach through this text four different times. Okay? And we're going to zero in on, on a few different uh, principles that kind of come up out of the text. And so this morning, we're going to read through the text of uh, Luke chapter 10, um, 25 through 37, Luke 10, 25 through 37. And we're going to focus in on the question that is asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So read along with me uh, on the screen or on your copy of scripture as I read aloud, Luke 10, 25 through 37. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him. 
he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Let's just once again bow for a word of prayer. Father, we pray that as we enter into this well-beloved story of the Good Samaritan, we pray, Lord, that you would give us fresh eyes to understand uh, how to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would work against any distractions that may be going on around us, that we would be able to focus in on the text and on the meaning, and, and Lord, most importantly, not, not necessarily to focus on the words that I'm speaking, but Lord, that we would be able to focus in on what the Holy Spirit might be saying to each one of us. We pray now, Lord, that you would focus our attention on the text, on this story, on your word, and that you would be glorified as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we look at this story, hopefully in a fresh way, uh, my desire is that we would look, first of all, at, uh, as I said, for this week, we're going to be looking at the whole text, and we're going to look at that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so as we go through the story, we're going to find there's three key characters here that we're going to see in the text. We're going to see a good lawyer, a good Samaritan, and a great Savior. So please look with me uh, at Luke chapter 10 as, as we look at this story together. Now it says there in verse 25 that an expert of, in the law, an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is the question that every human soul is asking. Okay, maybe they're not asking it directly to Jesus, Maybe they're not asking it out loud. Maybe they're not even conscious of asking it. But we are all asking the question, what can I do? What must I do in order to have eternal life? In fact, some religions kind of twist it even further to ask the question, you know, what must I do to experience nirvana? Or what must I do to experience transcendence? What must I do to be reincarnated? What must I do to know the gods? What must I do to know God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So there's a number of ways that we might find this question expressed in the world religions. But really, this is the question that our soul is asking. That, that from the depths of our being, and maybe not even in these words, but we are asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we need to see this good lawyer. All right, there is a good lawyer in the text. It says that, that an expert in the law stood up to test him. And so for the next few minutes, I want to kind of explain a little bit about this good lawyer. This expert in the law is not necessarily like what we think of as a lawyer today. And if you're up on your you know, lawyer jokes... Um, then you probably know that in our society today, lawyers are not always the, the, the most popular kinds of people. But in this day, the expert in the law would have been someone who was well-versed, not in how to 
defend a criminal or to prosecute a criminal. But more importantly, the expert in the law was someone who was an expert in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These would have been uh, individuals who were, who were experts in the law of Moses, the Torah, if you will. Uh, these were people who were able to explain the law of Moses. They were able to articulate it, and they were able to guide the people uh, in matters of the law. So they were experts in the law. This was a good lawyer. He's an expert. And he's approaching Jesus with a serious question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if he's an expert in the law, he knows, in fact, we're going to see that he's the one who responds. He knows what the law says. There are indications in the first five books of the law about what it would take in order to inherit eternal life. He knows what he's asking. He knows the answer to the question, but he comes to Jesus to test him because this expert in the law is so versed in legalism, in Phariseeism, in uh, strict observance of the Torah, that he can't accept Jesus's graciousness and compassion and his offer of forgiveness and love. I mean, why is this teacher, why is this Jesus of Nazareth, why is he going around and spending time with sinners? Doesn't he know that they're unclean? Why is this Jesus doing things on the Sabbath? Doesn't he know that's against our traditions and against the law? Um, why is this teacher going about uh, you know, going around and, and, and doing all of these things that are seeming to just kind of inflame all of the, uh, the, the ideas of Judaism. The, this teacher needs to be confronted. I, I'm, I'm going to approach this person, and this was a good lawyer. This was an expert in the law, and he's approaching them. He's approaching Jesus to test him. And he's probably, if he's willing to do that, he's probably pretty confident in his reading, in his understanding of the law. He's so good at it, and he knows it backwards and forwards. He knows the Ten Commandments, but then he knows all the other commandments as well. And he knows all the applications and the commentary on the, uh, you know, and the, uh, and the practice of those laws that he feels bold enough to approach the master. He feels confident enough to approach Jesus and test him. He believes that in a verbal sparring match, that this expert in the law believes that he has the ability to confront Jesus with this question. And so here is Jesus who has been showing compassion. He's been rubbing shoulders with thieves and criminals and, 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 and those who are unclean and lepers. Um, he's been doing things that are ceremonially unpure, that go against the law of Moses, seemingly, and, and, and doing all these things. And so on, on this end, you've got Jesus. And then on this other end, you've got this expert in the law, this good lawyer who is, uh, who is testing him. And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to find out what Jesus says about this. You know, if, if Jesus is seeming to, you know, overthrow tables in the temple, and if he's, you know, going over to, 
tax collectors' houses, and if he's saying that, you know, all these things that he's teaching that, that, that go beyond what Moses said, what does he say about this most fundamental, most basic question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the question that he poses to Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, always comes back with a just brilliant response. And in, in this case, he just simply turns the question back to him. Because Jesus isn't trying to dismantle anything. He's not trying to uh, reject the law of Moses. So he wants to know, all right, what is this teacher of the law? What is this expert in the law? What does he have to say? So Jesus responds saying, what is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? How do you read it? Now, once again, there are dozens, if not hundreds of commands just in the first five books of the Bible. There's all kinds of laws that, that were moral laws that had to do with God's nature. There were all kinds of civil laws because this was a, uh, a theocracy that was basically God was the... Well, you know, we, we have presidents or kings or things like that. They, they had God as their, uh, as their ultimate leader, uh, supposedly. And, um, and, and so they had civil laws that God had placed in uh, the, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that were supposed to govern their society. Um, so we kind of have a separation of church and state in our day and age. But they had a, a, a merging of church and state, or temple and state, I guess I should say. So there were all these civil laws that, uh, that, that were enumerated throughout the first five books of the Bible. And there were ceremonial laws. There were laws for purification. There were purification rites. Uh, there were sacrificial uh, laws that had to do with these ceremonies that had to be done just so. And, and so all of these laws were added up in the law. And so there was no shortage of laws governing the civil and ceremonial and even moral and spiritual life of the Israelites. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying to this expert in the law, look, I want you to sum it up. I want you to be able to, to, to boil it down and tell me what do you say there is that is important? Uh, what must I do to in, in uh, inherit eternal life. And so he, he answered, the, the good lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now it's interesting, sometimes we confuse this with uh, another instance where Jesus in Matthew and in Mark uh, Jesus answers. So, so there are some differences in this story and in another instance where Jesus himself answers the question. And, and he answers exactly in this way, that it's to love the Lord your God fully and to love your neighbor as yourself. That this really does sum up the law. In fact, in Matthew, he says, the, all of the law and the prophets depend on these two or are fulfilled in these two. So Jesus has answered in this way on other occasions, but this expert in the law agrees. This expert in the law is, he's the one answering, and he says, love the Lord your God. I want you to look at this verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now this good lawyer, he knows this is the summation because every single day, 
every Jewish family, every Jewish household would recite the Shema, which was in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we find that. But one phrase of the Shema, which means here, and it, it literally starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so he knew this. This was something that was recited every single day. In fact, he, as an expert in the law, probably recited this three or more times a day. Everyone knew that it could be summed up in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And related to it, as Jesus points out on another occasion, and as this expert in the law points out, is that in Leviticus 19.18, there's a command that says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge uh, against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Um, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so these were, uh, in fact, that particular command to love your neighbor is threaded all through the book of De Deuteronomy in particular. And so this was, uh, you know, normal. This pretty much everyone knew that you needed to love God fully and love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's what Jesus does. And this is brilliant. All right. If you're asking the question, what must I do? All right. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, without any uh, explanation, without talking about what he will do in the future, we all know that he goes to the cross and dies for us and pays that penalty for us. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But without any other comment, he just simply says to the response, what must I do? And, and the response is to love, your God, love God and love your neighbor. Um, he just simply says, you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. All right. You're dismissed. God bless. Right? You know, when you, when you look at just this summary of the law, see, see this is boiling down all of the commands, all of the moral and civil and ceremonial laws of, uh, of the nation of Israel and, and uh, that God had given to the people through Moses, when you sum it all up and, and you say, love the Lord your God, and by the way, he says four, four times, he says all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Let's just stop there. Have any of you done that this week? I have. No, I'm just kidding. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. How many of you have done that this week? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. How many of you have done that this week? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. How many of you have done that? this week. Okay? No. And then add to that. I mean, let's just assume that we could do that. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you have done that this week? No. But Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't refute his, his statement. He doesn't say you're wrong. He, he, doesn't he doesn't preview for him what he came to do on the cross. He just simply says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Legally speaking, this good lawyer, this expert in the law, he knows exactly what must be done. He is a good lawyer. He can explain it. He can even stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, who taught as one who had authority, and he can say to Jesus, I know the answer. I know how to sum it up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is true. This is correct. Everybody in Jerusalem, everybody in Israel knows that this is true. Do this, and you too will inherit eternal life. But the bad news is, I haven't done that today. And neither have you. And if you're trying to answer this question, see, I think it's good that this good lawyer is approaching Jesus. He's the right person to ask. But there's a lot of people in the world around us, our neighbors, who they're asking Buddha. They're asking the Koran. They're asking, you know, secular people. They're asking atheists. They're asking anyone and everyone trying to figure out what must I do? And they're coming up empty every single time. See, the answer is correct. He actually answers. See, the law of Moses uh, was pointing ahead. And, and everything that was there, Jesus wasn't overthrowing it. He wasn't refuting it. He wasn't correcting it. He was saying, no, you are absolutely correct. If you want to inherit eternal life and you're asking the question, what must I do? Then this is what you must do. Here's what you must do. From every part of your being, every second of every day, Every thought, every action, every, every part of you must fully love God and love others. And the reality is we can't do that. But it actually gets worse because here's what happens is this good lawyer, I think he already realizes that what Jesus has done is he's exposed something in this good lawyer? I, I think already this expert in the law is realizing by this response, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. He already knows that Jesus is explaining to him by asking a question. He's explaining to him that you're not doing this, are you? Now Jesus didn't ask it that way, but that's that's probably the sense that this good lawyer began to have is, man, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm not, I, I don't know if I'm doing this. I'm one of the best in Israel. I'm an expert in the law. And even I can't love God completely and perfectly and love my neighbor 
100%. So it says in verse 29, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, here's what the good Samaritan, or the good lawyer is seeking to do. The good lawyer is seeking to justify himself. He wants to say, I want to see if there are some limits as to who is my neighbor. I, I want to see if, 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 if I'm able to uh, fulfill this command to love my neighbor as myself. If we can start setting some limits on who that might be, if we can start setting limits on you know, who is my neighbor, then I might be able to love them. Because he doesn't certainly mean everyone, does he? He doesn't mean all people everywhere or anyone that I might come in contact with. He, he must mean something more specific. And so that's why Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan. So let's take a look at the Good Samaritan. Because remember, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is told in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Not to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's important because um, this good deed that's going to happen in the story is not the answer to what must I do to inherit eternal life. Instead, it's an answer to who is my neighbor. See, this good lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So let's read verse 30 and following and, and look at the good Samaritan. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So let's stop there for a minute. Because this priest is the cream of the crop within Judaism. The priest is someone who is always ministering to the needs of the people. The priest is someone who is, um, who is making the sacrifices on behalf of the people. The priest is the one who is interceding for the people with God, and yet he passes by on the other side. The Levite is usually a, also a, a priest, but it was a, a family. It was a, basically a family of priests. So a Levite was one of the tribes of Israel, the, the the, one of the tribes that was the priestly tribe. And so you may or may not be a priest and serving as a priest, but you are a Levite because there were, there were families involved. Um, so your dad might be a priest, but you yourself are a Levite. So here is a Levite. And here's what's interesting about the Levite is that a Levite is someone who, like the poor person, like the widow, like the orphan, and like the sojourner or the immigrant or the foreigner within the borders and the boundaries of the nation of Israel, the Levite also received their support through the temple. So everyone tithed uh, back in the Old Testament, they gave uh, these were kind of like their taxes and their tithes all rolled into one. And it was something that they would give. They'd bring their, their alms. They'd bring their money. They'd bring their gifts to the temple. Sometimes it wasn't monetary. Sometimes it was uh, uh, other things. But the Levites lived. They, they weren't given land. 
as all the other 11 tribes of the nation were given. Um, and so when they're living in Israel, they're having to uh, live off of the offerings of the people. So the, in other words, the Levites, they were a priestly caste. They weren't supposed to rely on farming or agriculture or anything like that. They relied on the offerings that were given through the temple. And so if anyone understood what it must be like to receive the offerings for themselves, like the poor, like the widow, like the orphan, like the sojourner, the Levite would have identified with the help that was offered to them through the giving of the people. And so here is this Levite who of all people should be able to look at this poor person, look at this, uh, the, this person on the, on the wayside and say, look, I have received so much. My entire life is underwritten and supported by the gifts of others. I should be able to look at this person and say, look, I am in need and I am supported. I am fully supplied. I am taken care of. Here is someone who is not. And because I have been the recipient of so much, I'm going to look at the, this person in the ditch and I'm going to offer aid. I'm going to offer help. But this Levite saw him and passed by on the other side as well. And at this point in the story, now the nationality of the person who had been robbed is not identified, but we, I think Jesus leads the people to assume that this must be a Jew, uh, that it's a Jew who's laid out on the side of the road half dead, and that this Jewish priest walks by and doesn't help. This Jewish Levite walks by and doesn't help. And so at this point, you're thinking what Jesus is going to say next is a Jewish layman, a, a Jewish citizen, just a common average Joe uh, or Jehoshaphat or whatever. You know, just the average person is going to walk by, but it's going to be a Jew is walking by and sees the man. And so it's not just the experts in the law and the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites. It's not just them, but really all of us should be helping. And, and so that's where you might think that Jesus is going to go. And it had to have been a shock when in verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now, keep in mind, this is just a story. It's a parable that Jesus gave. Um, so we're not told anything about why this Samaritan was in Jewish territory. We're not told what his nature, the nature of his business was or why he was on a journey through this area, which was a pretty rough area to be in for even a Jew. As you can see, this road from Jericho to Jerusalem was often the scene of bandits and, and robbers, just Jew on Jew violence. And yet here's this Samaritan. And what we probably don't fully appreciate about the Samaritan is just the kind of animosity that Jews had for Samaritans, um, you know, and Samaritans had against Jews, and they hated each other. They despised one another. They looked down on each other. They would go, in fact, it's so unusual that this good Samaritan is on this road because usually they would go all the way around to get to wherever their destination was. Um, they would go outside of Israel to go around the land of Samaria. 
that's the way Jews approached it. But then Jesus throws this curveball and he says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. <clears throat> then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And there's, there's the story. That's the whole parable. A priest and a Levite, their own countrymen, pass by without showing compassion. But this Samaritan, who is a sworn enemy of every Jew, is willing to bend down, stoop down, uh, spend his own money, uh, you know, Take extra time out of his out of his day and out of his journey. Actually, more than 24 hours that this man spends caring for and helping this enemy. Someone that would have despised his help, most likely. In fact, uh, it, it would not have been unusual for a Samaritan or a Jew, vice versa, if they were found in this kind of situation, to look at the other person and 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 laugh and gloat. And maybe even throw a couple extra stones just to see if, you know, maybe, maybe I can speed this death along for this person. They don't deserve any kind of help. And that was the kind of anger and animosity and, and hatred that Samaritans and Jews felt for each other. And so Jesus, by sharing this story, in answer to the question, then who is my neighbor? He's telling him... You know, not only are you supposed to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And not only are you supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, but even your own interpretation of those commands is insufficient. It's actually greater obedience that is required of you if you will inherit eternal life. Because here was the common interpretation of love your neighbor as yourself. Most Jews at this time believed that loving your neighbor as yourself meant that if you are a Levite, then you should love those in the tribe of Benjamin. That you should love those in uh, a different tribe. But within Israel. Anyone outside of the nation was an enemy. That's why Jesus earlier uh, in, well, in Matthew 5, verse 43 and 44, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That second part, hate your enemy, is not in the law. That, that is not a part of the Bible. Okay, that was something that you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This became the interpretation of that law is, yeah, you should love your neighbor. You should love your next door neighbor. You should love the people in the tribe, uh, you know, the, the Levite, the Levitical tribe, the, 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 the Benjamin tribe, the Judah tribe, like all the tribes of Israel. Those are your neighbors and you should love them. But everyone else you should hate. Samaritans, uh, you know, and, and, and everywhere, everywhere else. All other nations were to be despised because they don't follow our laws. They don't follow our God, and they should be rejected. In fact, 
it was even further interpreted that if you are a Pharisee, that you should love other Pharisees, but all the common people you should despise because they weren't worthy of you. They weren't as good as you. They weren't as holy as you. They weren't as strict adherence to the law as you. And so within the, the, the caste of, of Pharisees, they actually kept to themselves. It reminds me of the time recently where I heard two prosperity gospel preachers sitting at a table. This isn't a joke. It, it kind of sounds like it's starting a joke. Um, they're, they're sitting a, across from each other at a table. Uh, I wish it was a joke. Um, <laughs> talking about the reason and kind of justifying themselves for why they had to have their own personal jets. And so they were sitting across the table from each other. I can send you a YouTube clip if you'd like at some point. But they're, they're, they're sitting across the table from each other, and they're just talking. They're having a conversation. The camera's rolling, and, and they're talking, and they're saying, here's why we need our own private jet to do our ministry. I mean, I'm over here in this part of the world. I'm over here, and I've got to have – and so we've got to have the best of the best of the best of, the, uh, of a jet of an airplane, our own private plane, to get us from point A to point B. And their biggest reason was because one of them said, you know, if I ever fly with other people, there's all kinds of demons in there. There's no way I can sit next to someone. And what if the Holy Spirit comes on me and I just have a word from the Lord and all of a sudden I just want to jump up and, and, and shout. I can't do that with all of this oppression surrounding me. I've got to have my own private jet so I can be separate from the regular people. They literally said that out loud on camera, and they believed that that justified the excessive purchase of a luxury jet at the expense of, the, of those who gave. And here's what the Pharisees believed. The Pharisees believed, look, the rest of the people aren't worthy of me. So love your neighbor meant to them to love other Pharisees that are like me. Remember the prayer that Jesus pointed out that the Pharisee prayed like, oh, thank you, God, you know, that I am not like this publican, this sinner. Um, you know, I tithe and I fast and I do all these things and look at me. And he stood there in public and said that. But then this sinner went off to the side by himself. He said, woe is me. Forgive me of my sins. And so here we have this interpretation of love your neighbor that doesn't even fit with what God required. Who is my neighbor? Well, when you start to say that a Samaritan might be showing, might be proving to be a neighbor more than the priest or the Levite, that's saying something significant. It's saying, in answer to who is my neighbor, that it's greater than what you realized. Obeying this law. If you want to understand what, it, what you must do to inherit eternal life, then here's what you must do. You must love even your enemies perfectly. As much as you love yourself, you should love them. And you should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and your strength. So the point up to this point is just simply that what you 
think the law requires, it's actually greater. What you think you must do to inherit eternal life, it's actually harder. And the point here is that you simply cannot do it. Now, Jesus doesn't explain that. He doesn't go into detail. But I think he does something at the very end of the story that for us who are gospel-believing Christians on this side of the cross— See, he was saying all this before Jesus went to the cross. For us, it should point us to the cross. Because look at what he does at the end of this story. He tells the story, and he's basically saying, look, the law requires much more of you than you could ever imagine. The law requires something greater than you will ever fulfill. You can't do it in a daily basis, let alone live a perfect life. And holy life for the entirety of your life. But that's what's required of you in the law. But he says at the end, he says, he doesn't say, so now who is your neighbor? Instead, he says in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Jesus flips the question because he wants this good lawyer to see that the parable is placing the teacher of the law in the position, not of the one who is the neighbor, who is the good neighbor, but in the one who is in the position of need, the one who is in need of help, the one who is half dead, the one who is almost gone, the one who is in need of someone to come alongside of them and help them. And so we've seen a good lawyer. We've seen a good Samaritan. But in this last phrase where Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The man replies, the one who showed mercy to him. And he said, then Jesus told him, go and do the same. So once again, we're kind of left with a little bit of legalistic, like he's, he's strictly answering the law. In fact, Spurgeon says, you know, the question is legal and the answer is to the point. But let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. And so we cannot fulfill this law and you cannot fulfill any of the other laws of different religions and different Worldviews. You can't do it. You can't inherit eternal life. But we meet in this story a great Savior. We see a great Savior. Not that Jesus himself points this out in this parable. So I, I want you to understand, right now I'm not explaining the text per se, but I'm explaining the context. In other words, the book of Luke is given to show us that, yes, this is what the law requires. And if you could do it perfectly, then, yes, you, by your merits, you could inherit eternal life, but you can't do it. He's basically saying to this good lawyer, he's saying, look, look you are the man in need. You are the one in the ditch. You are the one who is sinful and broken and bruised 
And he's pointing ahead, not that he explicitly says this in this parable, but in the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we begin to see the unfolding of Jesus' plan of salvation. And we are in need of a great Savior because our condition is much like this man, except so much worse. It's not a physical condition. In fact, this man had the misfortune of being stripped and beaten and robbed and left half dead. But you and I are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And it wasn't my misfortune. It was my fault. It was my sins that, that find me in this condition of being lost and hopeless and broken and, and, sin, and, and bleeding. And my own sinful transgressions stole from me my life, robbed me from the, the life that I could experience. My rebellion is stripping righteousness away from me. My pride and selfishness are crushing my own soul. And the world can't satisfy me. It's just going to pass by on the other side. World religions can't help me. They're going to pass by on the other side. And so I'm laying there despondent, depressed, dead, doomed in my sins. But then a great Savior who was on a journey. He was on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And on his journey, he saw me. He saw my heart. He saw my soul. He saw my condition. He would have been completely justified as the perfect son of man and son of God that he was to pass by on the other side. He had every right. He owed me nothing. He knew I hated him. He knew I was his enemy. He knew I was filthy. He knew I was unclean. He could have passed right on by. And yet this great Savior, he went up to Jerusalem. He laid down his life to pay for mine. And with his bloody, nail-pierced hands, he reached down into the ditch and pulled me up so that I might live in this new life with him. And he brought me into his own home. He cared for me so that I might enjoy fellowship with him and experience abundant, eternal life through him. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see the good Samaritan in this story. But I want you more than that to see the great Savior Amen. in this story. Amen. Amen. What must I do to inherit eternal life? can't do anything. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough degrees. It doesn't matter what kind of family you were born into or what nationality. There's nothing you can do. You can't love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. You certainly can't love your neighbor as you love yourself. You're lost. You're in need of a great Savior, And praise the Lord that in the pages of Scripture and in our hearts, we have met this great Savior. Not because I saw him first. Not because I sought after him first. But because he saw me. Amen. In fact, what happens before the good, the good Samaritan saw 
it says, um, the priest saw and passed by. The Levite saw and passed by, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. He came near. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. Jesus is our great Savior. And he has offered his life. He has been bloody and bruised and beaten and robbed and despised and cast aside so that you might have eternal life. Father, we are so grateful for this amazing story of, yes, of, of the Good Samaritan. I mean, it tells us so much about our need for a Savior. It tells us that we, we just can't fulfill the law. We're, we're never going to be able to. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here that needed to hear this message of salvation that, and they've never placed their faith in Jesus as their great Savior, that today they would trust in Him. He has offered us so much by dying on a cross for our sins that, that we, we're just so blessed to receive this free gift of salvation. And so Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, for us as believers, Lord, help us to be encouraged that in our weakness and in our brokenness, though this life throws all kinds of challenges at us, we thank you, Lord, that ultimately the greatest good has already been done for us. And so, yes, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, there are trials and tribulations in life, but our soul is right with you because you have accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made and you have credited to my account. So Lord, let us walk out of this room with gratitude and a desire to go and do likewise, not, not because we think it's going to earn us salvation or give us an inheritance, which we already have in Christ Jesus, but instead that we would go and do likewise because we're seeking to be more like Jesus, who is compassionate and loving, that we would be merciful because our Heavenly Father is merciful. So Lord, we ask by your Spirit to give us the power to live a life of compassion and mercy and love. And so in Jesus' name we pray.